0: A show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Falun Gong. This is episode 37, Imperial Japan Part 7, Spyclopedia Part 3, The Many Identities of Nisho Inoue Part 1, or The Troubled Spy. Today I'm recording from the Guma Prefecture. Now, at the start of this new entry to the Imperial Japan series. Let's see here, there are four episodes on Nisho Inoue, and I think that, I wouldn't say that I need to justify why I'm giving so much time to this guy, but for one thing, it's been a minute since we've had a formal entry into the Spyclopedia series. For another, I think the story of Inoue's life will highlight and make clear many of the things that I've just almost cavalierly been saying, right? So examining this time period and the different forces through the life of a of an operative would probably be very instructive, I think. So let's get right into it. Nisho Inoue was born in 1887 in Kawaba in the Guma Prefecture. His birth name was Shiro Inoue. Incidentally, he was born in the region where they speak the Canto dialect, for the weeds out there. Which, some people have sort of compared to almost like Texas, or like a southern dialect. Uh, It's interesting, but I can't speak on it at great length. Inoue's father was a doctor. His father supported imperial expansion, like as a general concept. Inoue's childhood was not happy for example, his mother told him that she was not his mother and that they just found him as a baby on the side of the road. Which is really funny to me because, like, I've heard people joke about telling their kids this, like, in Latin America. So, like, I wonder if this is almost like a worldwide peasant tradition of, like, messing with your kids' heads like that. Either way, Inoue did not realize she was joking until well into his teens. As a child, Inoue was obsessed with the spectacle. He was obsessed with pranks. He, <laughs> he recalled doing the classic dog shit in a bag on fire trick, which is pretty funny. Less funny, though, was that he was a firebug. He was a little arsonist, and he burned down an entire. He accidentally burned down entire fields in his village. To help with his behavioral problems, his father sent young Inoue to start learning kendo sword training to try to discipline and focus him. It didn't seem to work, though, because Inoue actually burned down part of their own house. His father then sent him off to live with relatives because of these problems. Inoue was bright, but he was not interested in school, except, curiously, the morals class he said that that was the only class that he would not skip in high school he was exposed to christianity but he did not believe it he also says that in this time he rejected the emperor and nationalism i have my doubts about that but there's no way to prove him wrong right not coincidentally he also says that during this period of time in his life i plunged into the depths of a deep, dark despair. Now, I think it can be easy to make fun of adolescents for being depressed or morbid or having what looks like midlife crises quite young, right? But an interesting thing is that a lot of profound religious thinkers of all denominations often cite this exact period of their times as critical, in a time when they were obsessed with death, with the meaning of life, right? And even if you're not a, you know, famous religious thinker later on, I don't think we should discount these experiences that young people have, right? I mean, I kind of remember that from my adolescence, right? I mean, for most people, adolescence is really the first time you really start to understand how bullshit most of life is. And I don't think that there, I don't think young people are entirely wrong about that. Anyway, Inoue said that one of his friends at this time had gone off to college and become a socialist. And that was the first time that Inoue had ever heard of such things. This would have been one of the periods of time when socialism was, in fact, taking off in Japan. Now, I find it interesting that Inoue did not pretend to be a socialist when he was younger, like many, many ultra-nationalists would claim. Now, for the most part, I will refrain from passing judgment on Inoue, at least at the start of the story, right? But I will say that I generally believe the average statement that he makes much more than, say, Yoshio Kodama. We'll definitely, you know, get into it. So, Inoue graduated high school in 1905, And 1905 was when the Russo-Japanese War was kicking off. And there he was. Suicidal. So he joined the army. A song as old as time, right? Inoue thought that he might get the chance to die gloriously in battle. But, and you know, we mentioned how life is bullshit. (laughs) They placed Inoue on a military hospital ship instead. He was stuck as a steward. At one point, he was frustrated and tired of (laughs) the naval life, so he got up on the railing of the boat and he was about to jump, like meaning to kill himself, when one of his older comrades, one of the other sailors, pulled him down and yelled at him, saying, Don't you have any family? Shame on you. Like that kind of thing. So Inoue decided to stay alive longer. Around this time, he got pretty big into drinking and frequenting brothels. The naval life, I suppose. Sometime later, the ship that Inoue was on was attacked and sunk. And this is interesting. Inoue actually won a decoration for running back to the ship over and over. And according to the award, he actually pulled 18 men from the burning ship. Though decorated, the war ended, right? And so he found himself without a job. So he started working in the Mitsubishi shipyards. Inoue said that it was the only time he was ever really happy, when he was working in the shipyards with his friends. Though he doesn't frame it this way, I am sure it is not a coincidence that the happiest time in his life was when he was close to being a pro and doing honest labor, right? Inoue says that he accidentally caused a small strike, which caused him to get fingered as an organizer, which caused him to have to flee the shipyards. To get away, and to stop from getting in trouble, he re enlisted in the army, where he served a few more years. He was actually issued a certificate calling him a superior soldier, but his term ended. Inoue's father agreed to send him to college, but Inoe just became a worse drunk. He would spend the money his father would send him on alcohol, he would skip class, he would go to brothels even more than before, and interestingly, Inoe started doing some doctor patient fraud <laughs> What I mean by that is he would go collect payments that were meant for his father, the doctor, which he would waste on partying Inoe either quit or got kicked out of university. And so he started attending a vocational school, the Toyo Koyokai, which was to say the Oriental School. This vocational school was interesting in that it offered a guaranteed permanent job in the following locations, Taiwan, Korea, or Manchuria. Do you notice any similarities between those? That's what empires are good for, right? Among other things, it's a safety valve for your suicidal, homicidal young men. But apart from that, it is also a jobs program for those same groups of young men. At that vocational school, Inoue became friends with the Chinese teacher, and he made serious progress learning Chinese. Now from here on out, we have to take much of the story with a grain of salt because as the story goes, he was then kicked out of the vocational school. But Inoue left for Manchuria anyway, for that job that he was promised, despite not graduating. This was in the year 1909, so it was well before the Manchurian incident. It was before World War I, even. In Manchuria, Inoue wandered for a time, sort of doing the whole ronin thing, and then he was hired by Montetsu, which is to say the South Manchuria Railway Company, which, ding, 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 we have mentioned that several times, and we will just keep on talking about it. If you remember what they're about, they were basically a public, private railway company in a weird sort of extraterritorial area of Manchuria, which is to say, not effectively governed by China, which was the sick man of Asia. The railway was the way, the railway was Japan's way of squeezing their foot in the door and then pushing the door open. Though, of course, this was decades before the state of Manchukuo. Now, if you'll recall, the railway was 50% owned by the Japanese government with Emperor Hirohito as the largest private shareholder, and Mitsui and Mitsubishi owning the next largest chunks. When I talked about this railway company in the Manchukuo episode, I did not I did not include the fact that the railway's president was actually the former imperial governor of Taiwan, which underscores the clear connection between past, present, and future Japanese imperialism. So my operating theory is that Inoue was actually recruited to be a spy when he was still in vocational college. The thing about getting kicked out of the school sounds a little fake to me. Inoue didn't say that he was recruited at this time, but we, like, he was recruited at some point, and I think it makes sense that he would have been recruited before leaving for Manchuria but if he was recruited there too, it would also make sense. Still, if I had to put money on it, I would say he was probably recruited at that school, right? Interestingly, a lot of the Chinese language teachers in Japan at the time had interesting ambitions, you know, a lot of Imperial Japan, what would become Imperial Japan's ambitions. They had them before it was cool, I guess you could say. So Inoue becoming particularly, particularly close to the Chinese teacher is a tell, in my opinion. But Now, at first, Inoue was given the job of being a railway shipping clerk. But after that, he was instructed to join a bandit camp. Inoue's role was to bring money and arms, and to participate somewhat. But he really wasn't given, like, a particularly important job at that point. Now, remember that this was at the tail end of the Qing dynasty, and there were uprisings and rebellions in many parts of China, and especially in Manchuria. Japan had reason to infiltrate, monitor, assist, and sometimes destroy these different rebellions. Certainly they wanted to influence them, and definitely keep an eye on them, right? Not to get ahead of myself, but we will be examining one of these particular groups in the future. Japan definitely wanted to weaken the Qing Dynasty, and then thereby move into the breach during those periods of chaos. So they had agents in every conceivable volatile situation. Inoue was just one of literally thousands of Japanese spies in the Chinese countryside, which was at that time filled with many potentially revolutionary situations. Inoue was sent to join a group that was forming to carry out an uprising in Liaoyang, which was 190 miles northeast of Dairan. The uprising was to occur on December 1st, 1911. Inoue was not with the group when he found out that the Chinese army which is to say the Qing dynasty's government's army, had actually attacked the rebel group that he was with. He came across the rebel group. He found many of his comrades dead, their heads severed from their bodies. Then he continued to investigate, and he saw more of, the, of his group of rebels, and he watched them face mass execution by beheading. We have Inoue's words here, where he wrote, It took about two hours for all of the prisoners to be executed. I was filled with indescribable feelings of rage, sympathy, and sorrow, so much so that I felt as if I were going mad. I then made a pledge to myself, I'll definitely get revenge on these enemies. After that, Inoue became a kendo instructor for the South Manchuria Railway Company, which, Again, I might not have mentioned in episode 31, but many Japanese spies used the many Japanese spies used the cover of being martial arts instructors. That's precisely what Inoue did. Also, being a kendo instructor was mostly a no-show paper job, however, and he spent most of his time buying, transporting, and selling weapons to various bandit groups in Manchuria. During this period in 1912, Inoue in Manchuria met a Soto Zen priest named Soshin Asuma who changed Inoue's life. Asuma had been invited to Manchuria through the South Manchuria Railway Company yet again, who invited Zen Buddhist priests over like we talked about in episode 34 and 35 and 36. These priests helped exert soft power through their missionary efforts, and of course, they provided cover for espionage and so on. But of course, they were also doing real missionary work, at least among the Japanese people. And so Inoue met Asuma, who was giving what I guess you could call a sermon or a lesson. Inoue described this meeting, saying to himself, In the past, I was deceived by Christians. And now a Buddhist priest will try to hoodwink me. I'll go along with them just to show what a fake he is too. When Inoue met Asuma after the meeting, he said to him, To tell the truth, I'm someone who's been suffering from a number of doubts for many years now. Asuma, being a Zen Buddhist priest, he asked Inoue to explain his doubts. And for the next hour, Inoue went over his doubts and fears, He got into the essence of things, talking philosophy, talking morality, and the competing needs to be both loyal and filial. Inoue ran his mouth about the true nature of reality and, you know, everything that plagues a young man with a philosophical bent. When Inoue was done, Asuma asked, Well, is that all you have? Inoue got mad at him and said, No, I have many more questions, but I'll stop here for the time being to respectfully ask for your response. Before Inoue was even finished saying that, Asuma shouted at him, Fool! Inoue shouted back, What do you mean, a fool? And he jumped up at the priest menacingly. Asuma smiled and then started laughing. Asuma said, I'm the fool. A fool is someone who doesn't understand what's going on. I foolishly listened to you say you didn't understand this and didn't understand that. Moreover, I remained silent when you told me you were unable to understand anything at all. That's why I called myself a fool for letting you get away with it. Inoue was dumbfounded, but he asked, Well, do you understand the meaning of life? Asuma said, Of course I do. Inoue replied, well in that case, instead of calling someone a fool, wouldn't it just be better to answer their questions? Asuma replied, what a lazy man you are. You expect someone who has risked his life to understand something to give you answers without having to make any effort on your part? That's not the way it works. This calmed Inoue somewhat, and he said, is that so? Well in that case, how about telling me the way you went about discovering these things for yourself?" Asuma then began to tell him about Zazen, you know, I'll probably stop defining these every time they come up, but that is the Zen Buddhist meditation technique, right? And Inoue agreed to study it under him. Negging your would-be spiritual acolytes, that's the way to do it. I'm only half joking. I'm not saying Asuma was wrong, necessarily, in how he handled Inoue, Though I suppose we will see how well it worked out in the end. Perhaps Inoue began meditation practice in earnest, and he and he worked at meditating forty minutes a day, twice a day. Reportedly, out of the group of Japanese working for the railway company, Inoue was the only student still studying under Asuma under Asama after several months. And Inoue successfully answered several Zen koen, right, which took intense study. So if you'll remember episode 31, I mentioned how the Japanese assassinated a warlord, Zhang Zhulin, right, in 1928. Well, we're not at 1928 yet, but much of what Inoue was doing during his time in Manchuria was attempting to destabilize Zhulin's rule. Like I said, Inoue was smuggling weapons to different rebel groups. Zhang actually learned about this, and he demanded the railway company hand him over specifically, like by name, which, had the railway company complied, would have meant Inoue's death. Basically, Inoue's cover was blown, so he couldn't operate there anymore. So Inoue was told he had to leave. Inoue describes it kind of like being laid off from his company job, but you could make a case that it was actually a reassignment given subsequent events. Either way, it meant the end of Inoue studying Zen Buddhism under Asuma. Reportedly, both of them shed tears and Asuma said to him, had we just a little more time, I would have liked to introduce you to the Lotus Sutra, which Inoue didn't know what the Lotus Sutra was, but later, when he learned about it, it would have a profound effect on my spiritual life, in his words. So Inoue left for Beijing in 1914. And in Beijing, he didn't just show up for any particular job. Inoue showed up at the door of Banzai Rihachiro, who was at that time a lieutenant general in the Imperial Japanese Army, he was serving as a military advisor to Yuan Shikai, who was at that time the prime minister of the Chinese Republic. He would soon become president and later, briefly, emperor. In Inoue, he describes his relationship to Rahajiro like as if he were asking to study at a Zen Buddhist monastery or like a martial arts dojo or something. Like he offered, like he begged to stay there to work for no pay, to do household chores, literally anything, which maybe that's how it started, but by the end of it, Inoue was doing espionage work. While he was living in Beijing, he continued to study Chinese. He also continued to study Zen Buddhism. Riachiro gave Inoue work that was very similar to what he was doing, gun running in Manchuria except this time he was spending less time dealing with weapons and more time directly observing different rebel groups. On top of that, he he was to spy on Chinese army bases and installments, as well as those bases of foreign military powers, like the Germans. If you'll recall, many different European powers had army bases and installments all over China, right? The purpose of Inoue's missions were to gather intelligence for perhaps, say, any impending world wars that might break out, or Japanese invasions, or civil wars, you know, the, those hypothetical things that might happen. Inoue was sent to Qingdao, for example, where there was a sizable German presence. I am certain, yeah, that episode's already come out, that, (laughs) um, I talked about this with Boyd Beaver. This is the German concession on the Shandong Peninsula, right? And for the hopheads out there, Tsingtao Beer came from this region, right? They were started, the company, that is, the company was started by an Anglo-German company. The British provided the capital and the Germans provided the beer-making expertise. Now, in the course of Japan's wars, Japan captured and stole the beer company, and then they sold it to the Acai, to the Acai Brewing Company, for a time. Then the company was captured and nationalized by the nationalist Chinese. Then it was captured and nationalized by the Chinese communists. In the 1990s, the company was privatized again, which allowed Anheuser-Busch to buy into it, and then Asa'i bought in, but by present day, I'm pretty sure that it's now wholly owned by Chinese capital. In some ways, the story of Tsingtao beer shows us the modern history of China, right? Anyway, because of the German presence, there was a German military base. Inoue's reconnaissance of that German military base proved to be extremely useful in just a short time in the future. Inoue also visited Shanghai a number of times, presumably for many reasons. As you'll recall, Shanghai was a quasi-open city divided up by several factions, by several factions, and it was in like a weird legal limbo, right? And it was also ground zero for spying, gambling, crime, nightclubs, brothels, you know, the works. Let's talk about World War I. Some people forget that Japan participated in World War I, and they actually participated in a pretty major way, though they were not, for the most part, in direct combat, right? Japan fought on the side of the Allied powers, and they were actually vital in some ways, because they secured the sea lanes in the West Pacific and in the Indian Ocean. They secured those sea lanes against Germany, right? The Japanese Navy escorted troops from Australia and New Zealand. They had ships in the Mediterranean. They even suppressed a mutiny in India for the British, which you can imagine what I think about that. During World War I, Inoue spent the war spying for Japan, mainly against Germany, though, as always, also against the European foreigners in general, also against the Chinese, the main difference being that they were actually shooting at the Germans and just spying on the rest. Inoue mainly spent the war in the Shandong province and especially in Qingdao, which was important because of the Germans, right? Now, a little bit of geography for those who aren't super up on Chinese geography. Lord knows I had to look this up too. But for reference, Shandong Province is in northeastern China. It is immediately to the left of the Korean Peninsula. It's across the Yellow Sea. I don't think Shandong Province is generally considered Manchuria. It is close in the general sense, closer than most of the rest of China, right? Now, one particularly notable operation that Inoue ran was to recruit the Japanese concubine of the German commander of the German colony and army base in Qingdao. Now remember, this was in an era when Japanese women were still sold, like literally, and that's how this woman ended up with this foreigner. The woman was homesick and wanted to return to Japan. According to Inoue, he says that he offered to secure this concubine's passage back to Japan in exchange for her information and cooperation. In this case she managed to steal detailed map of their fortifications and mines in the harbor and Inoue says that he did in fact get her back to Japan. The detailed plans and especially the minefield would end up being critically important. But to be truly useful, Inoue basically needed to observe the minefield directly, and to do that he had to pretend to be a Zen Buddhist priest. That was his cover for being in the area in the first place. This intelligence that he gathered by pretending to be a Zen priest was critical for the siege of Tsingtao, which was when the imperial which was when Imperial Japan sieged. And captured the city, which took place in August to November of 1914. It was actually the only major land battle in the Asian theater of World War I. Later on during the war, Inoue worked as an interpreter, which was also one of his covers. As a side note, it is interesting to look at how commendably and humanely Imperial Japan acted towards their prisoners of war during both the Russo-Japanese War and World War One, There are accounts on both sides testifying to Japan's humane treatment of their prisoners, and it is notable because it was so dramatically different from how they treated prisoners of war during World War II. Now, this massive difference in how they treated prisoners is something that the Imperial Way Faction points to as one of the main reasons they lost World War II. They suggested that the control faction ran the war in a dishonorable way. I'm agnostic on the point, mainly because, like, there's probably something to that, but it also smacks a little bit of idealism. If anything, that they're probably both, like, reflections of some sort of, like, level of corruption that... I don't know, like, it's a very complicated question and I'm not, like, really an expert on Japanese military history, right? But various historians of all nationalities have suggested that this POW policy difference existed. And interestingly, like, when I mentioned that the Imperial Way Faction argued that this was one of the reasons that they lost the war, Yoshio Kodama argued that point in his book, I Was Defeated, which is really funny. Can you imagine a U.S. veteran of the war in Vietnam writing a book called I Was Defeated? So, after a certain point, World War I was still going on, but it was effectively over for Japan. During this period, Inoue was still enlisted, but he got into commodity trading. And when I say commodity trading, some of you might not know what that means. Others might envision basically something like Wall Street trading. But in way's commodity trading was very different from that. Basically, Japan had a massive shortage of copper. And China actually used copper as currency. So Basically, Inoue and his comrades, and many other people too, got into the habit of acquiring as much copper currency as they could, and then they would just send it to Japan, and they would sell it at markups as high as 36 times its value in China. This was super illegal in China, and it actually technically carried the death penalty. But China being the sick man of Asia and all, Inoue and his spy friends just bribed any Chinese officials who were in a position to know or stop them, right? This was probably the first time that Inoue started to style himself as a businessman, which was one of his many, many identities. Inoue continued his pre-war work of monitoring rebel groups in China. Now, don't get me wrong here, This was a period of Chinese history where the term rebel could be applied extremely broadly. This was also the period of time when Japan was really starting to understand that they could really get a huge slice of China out of this whole world war stuff. And one of the main ways they did that was by supporting these rebel groups, cutting deals with them. If they could basically weaken China They could cut a better deal with the weakened new government that would come out of the chaos. Like, this is basically empire making, right? This is how they do it. Like, the British did it. Lord knows the U.S. has done things like this, right? Perhaps sit down for this one, right? So, you might not remember, dear listeners, but... At the beginning of the series on Imperial Japan that I did, I mentioned how (laughs) far-right political terrorists threw a bomb into the carriage of the then foreign minister, Shigenobu Okuma. He survived, but he lost a leg, right? Now, Okuma later became prime minister of Japan, and while Inoe was still in Qingdao after World War one, Inoe was actually approached by representatives of the Japanese Prime Minister. These representatives gave Inoue canisters. Canisters of what you might ask? Oh, canisters of poison gas. Inoue was to deliver the poison gas to certain Chinese revolutionaries. Now, mind you, this is still more or less right after World War I. So this is decades before Shiroishi, Unit 731, and the more well-known Japanese bioweapons research program in Manchukuo and elsewhere during the 1930s and 1940s. Much, much less is known about the bioweapons ...about Japanese bioweapons programs prior to Unit 731. This is... ...literally one of the only references to it that I have ever come across. This is some wild shit, like... I'm sorry. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but like... ...only on Program to Chill are you gonna hear about this. Okay. Now, if you'll also recall, in episode 31 we know that the Japanese attempted to poison the Lytton delegation, which was that United Nations investigation into the Manchurian incident. That incident also predated Unit 731. Keep in mind that they failed to poison (laughs) Lytton and, you know, the investigation, right? So Inoue received these poison gas canisters. They were told to test them out before giving them to the Chinese, so they tried it out. They exploded some poison gas canisters on a flock of sheep. The canisters did nothing, and Inoue thought that that was pretty funny. Then, the canisters that they still had, they gave them to the revolutionaries in Shandong. But the canisters did not seem to work for them either. But... That did not stop Inoue from writing leaflets about how the Chinese revolutionaries had poison gas canisters, and therefore anyone opposing the, these revolutionaries should just surrender. This was probably the main objective, regardless of whether the poison gas canisters worked or not. Inoue continued to work with these groups, He supposedly he actually fought with them and saw combat. He did this until 1916 when, according to him, he was framed by the Kempeitai who said that he was smuggling weapons for non-approved rebels, also known as bandits, rather than only to the Kempeitai approved Chinese revolutionaries. Quote now this whole affair is super hard for me to parse out. It reminds me of the legal gray zone that virtually all arms dealers operate in they are always in danger of being burned by their own side. And of course, every arms dealer is fundamentally working for themselves most of all. And you look at the career of most arms dealers, at least more in the modern era, and frequently you will see times when they just about get busted by their own side. And that can be rightfully or wrongfully, depending on where you're standing, and your perspective on the matter, right? Either way, though, Inoue had to skip town, so he went back to Japan, and he laid low. Inoue went to hide in his wife's fishing village. His wife's village was near Hiroshima. Oh, I didn't mention that he got married, right? I didn't talk about it, because Inoue didn't either. He proved to be quite the husband, as we will see. Anyway, while Inoue was hiding out, Inoue's doctor father, went to, went to a seer who recommended that his son change his first name. Now this was not necessarily an unheard of practice in Japan, though I cannot help but think of all of the many practical applications that this would have for spies in particular, right? So Inoue changed his name to Akira, which means sun or sunlight or to shine. The family also took the occasion to register as Buddhist, which they were not formally before. They also registered Inoue as a Zen Buddhist priest. Now, it is possible to read into this as the first steps in some sort of long-term plan, but it is realistically more likely that this was just a useful social and legal designation that a spy could have. Right? To like being, a, like actually being a Zen Buddhist priest. It's kind of like the. <laughs> it's kind of like how there are many spooks and spies who are wandering bishops, right? There are often very real, literal perks to being clergy, even if you're clergy for like a fake church and. You know, I wouldn't say that this is like super common in tradecraft, but it does happen, right? And this is just another of Inoue's many, many identities. So once things sort of, you know, blew over, Inoue returned to China in 1916, like late 1916. And he went specifically to Shanghai and he lived in the French concession, if you'll recall in episode thirty two, Shanghai was divided into various concessions, and the French one was where most of the Europeans lived. It's precisely where they would want to be in order to spy, right? But also to make money, to profit. To that end, Inoue went to Shang went into Shanghai as a businessman, which, mind you, he technically wasn't really a businessman, but like now that's a new identity, right? Almost immediately, Inoue was completely defrauded by his copper exporting—I'm doing air quotes—exporting business partners. Luckily, he found an angel investor. He had an interesting new partner, a new business partner, Major General Banzai Rihachiro. Together, they went in on commodities, buying and selling rice and wheat. From there, they went on to operate a horse racing track and then a bank, and they also got into the ever-euphemistic catch-all, Other Business Ventures, which realistically probably included Other Vices. We don't know exactly which Other Vices, but later on in the story, I will bring up why we think that probably brothels were one of those vices as well. So take note, dear listener, Inoue went from running commodities, he ran a horse racing track, he ran a bank, all in Shanghai, that's still intelligence operations. It also happens to be organized crime. And it pairs exactly with what we talked about in episode 32, where Japan was running... Brothels and drugs in order to destabilize China. While Inoue was on a business trip, more air quotes. They're not well suited for an audio medium, but what are you going to do? While Inoue was on a business trip to Beijing, he was first introduced to Mitsuru Toyama, who we have talked about in several episodes. As a reminder, he was the ultra nationalist and political fixer who also ran a secret society, the Dark Ocean Society to be precise. They were a patriotic criminal terrorist organization that helped advance Imperial Japan's aims in Korea particularly. Toyama also had a hand in creating the Kokuryokai, or the Black Dragon Society, which was attempting to do in China what they did to Korea. Either way, Toyama made a huge impression to Inoue. Inoue was 29 years old at this time, and Toyama was 60. I'll quote from Brian Daizen Victoria here, who wrote on the occasion of their first meeting. Toyama presented a striking figure, a flowing white beard masking his traditional kimono dress, white hakama skirt, and cotton haori jacket bearing his family crest. Upon entering the room, Inoue noticed that Toyama put down a magazine entitled Zen that Toyama had been reading. The interview lasted for approximately an hour. Toyama's associate did most of the talking, describing what he regarded as the high-handed actions of both England and the United States in China. During this time, Toyama's only response was, I see. Finally, when the associate was finished, Inoue was anxious to see how Toyama would respond. Toyama's response was simple. The powerful are always vanquished. Inoue had previously heard what a great man Toyama was, but now he knew that Toyama was even greater than the rumor made out. Toyama's words made a deep impression on Inoue, and from then on, Toyama was a man Inoue kept close to his heart, Unquote. Probably not coincidentally, this was when Inoue decided to go back to Japan to, quote, find release from his mental anguish. This was when Inoue got deep into religion. We will pick up on Inoue's story next week. Let's recap some of the key points for today. Off the top of my head, there are a number of lessons from this first half of Inoue's life. We saw how Inoue fits the general pattern of fascists being from downwardly mobile middle-class upbringings and troubled childhoods. Inoue was recruited to be a spy when he was in college, which is Realistically, when most spies are recruited, honestly, Inoue was spying for the South Manchuria Railway Company, or at least that is who he was reporting to. It's almost a moot point whether he would be considered a spy for the company or for Japanese intelligence when it's almost the same thing, hand in glove, right? I mean, when we talk about like Krupp spying on behalf of German intelligence, kind of the same thing, right? Like, it almost doesn't matter, but, I mean, it probably matters if you're prosecuting them for espionage, but, like, you're not likely to get a true answer even if you wanted. So, anyway, Inoue was in Manchuria doing some pretty heavy things, like he was gun smuggling. He also picked up his interest in Zen Buddhism there, and I have no reason to doubt his actual, genuine sincerity and interest in Zen Buddhism. Then Inoue worked with Banzai Riachiro doing more intelligence work. Particularly, he was spying during wartime. And I've said it before, but from what I can intuit, and if you sort of read between the lines, spies who spy during wartime are a lot more in the club, so to speak, than those who spy outside wartime. Like, I, I have observed this with, like, the OSS. I think that's true for the U.S. as well. I'm pretty sure it's just a dynamic that holds true for a lot of intelligence agencies. I could be wrong, but it feels correct to me. I mean, sound off in the comments if you have uh, any examples. I would love to hear about that. Inoue was definitely in the club given his immediate post-war copper coin smuggling and other opportunities to make money that consistently just, you know, sort of fell into his lap, you know, for the rest of his life. Not unlike William Stevenson, or perhaps Alexander Guterma or many other spies. We saw how Inoue was exposed to Japan's early bioweapons program. With certain things, you just want to stick with people you know and trust, and in no way had already proven that. If you'll recall, listeners, maybe you you haven't heard my episode with the amazing journalist Jeff K, who pretty exhaustively documented that a lot of the American bioweapons program was actually like the same people who were involved in the MKUltra program. You wouldn't think that it would be like the same people because they seem quite different, right? But like, if you're doing some heinous shit and you have a person you trust, you'll probably stick with the person you trust. And that seems to be the case with Inoue. It's probably true for a lot of things in a lot of cases like this. Then we saw Inoue was in Shanghai doing commodities trading. He ran a horse racing track, then he ran a bank. Now, we talked about the flows of dirty money flowing around at that time, and Inoue would probably have been an active participant in these flows of money. You don't just fall into these positions by accident, not in Shanghai, not in the 1920s. Then, the meeting with Mitsuru Toyama was, of course, extremely significant for a whole number of reasons. Inoue never says nor does Brian in Victoria. And I'm not knocking Mr. Victoria. He's an exceptional scholar. But being an academic, I, you know, you just know he don't want to basically imply or read between the lines. Like you always want to like have your facts written down. But when you're podcasting, you can do whatever you want. And that's what I'm doing. So let's just say, I think it's pretty clear that several of Inoue's inactions from this point on were either probably like direct orders or strong recommendations coming from Toyama. And oh, what a story it is, which we will get into next week. Now for sources today, I used Brian Dyson Victoria's books, uh, particularly Zen Terror, I also used the Seagraves book, Gold Warriors. I also used just about every book that I've cited up to this point, basically, at least for, you know, context and deep research. It all sort of blurs together at this point, but the main story, I think, is coming from Zenter, which is a phenomenal book. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. If you like what I do check me out on Patreon, where I do some really cool stuff. You get your money's worth. Check it out. Now I am on my way to the Hermitage of Three Virtues. See you next episode, and God bless.